0: My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters In my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people.
1: Lord God, as we open your word tonight, um, I pray that the hard words that we hear um, would make us soft, soften our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, and I pray that you would open my lips, that my mouth might proclaim your praise. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good evening. This wonderful fall ish evening. We're flirting with fall. Maybe it's coming. I don't know. Um, Tonight we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah. And these are sad words, they're hard words. Um, I'm the kind of person who likes uh, sad music. I really like sad music. Um, You probably could tell that about me if you've spent any time with me at all. Uh, Recently, a friend texted me, and he described an album as devastating, and I immediately listened to it and loved it. Um, That's how much I like sad music. So I read Jeremiah, and I hear, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me, and I'm like, yeah, those are some lyrics to a sad song. I can get behind this. We're going to talk about Jeremiah because we're going to talk about lament and what lament has to teach us, um, maybe about how we can, or um, how God invites us to pray, um, and what we do with hard things in the context of prayer. And I think Jeremiah has something to say to us about that tonight. So just as a way of beginning, I want to think about Jeremiah on three levels. Uh, First, as a prophet. If you know anything about Jeremiah, you would say, oh, Jeremiah's prophet. He's one of the big three. He's one of the major prophets. We have minor prophets. We have the major prophets. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets, And part of the job of a prophet, part of the vocation of a prophet is um, bearing the burden of God to the people. So hearing God's word and speaking that word to the people and sometimes those are very hard words, words of judgment, words um, of what is going to happen that might be impending doom, but also words of hope of what God has in the future. So Jeremiah has some of the lowest lows of any of the prophets, but some of the highest highs because he's the prophet who speaks of the promise of a new covenant, even in the midst of Judah and Jerusalem being torn down all around him. So first, I want you to think about Jeremiah as a prophet. Second, I want you to think about Jeremiah as a poet, Um, especially this section we have in front of us tonight is poetry. And it uses many of the devices that we would be familiar with in poetry, uh, metaphor and elevated language and imagery um, to make a point, to affect a response, to give voice to grief, to despair, And in that poetic language, he teaches us something about the nature of lament. So he's a prophet, he's a poet, but the third level I want you to think about Jeremiah on is just as a human being, as a person. He's living at a time and place in the history of his people when everything's crumbling down. The Babylonians are marching in, they're gonna tear down the temple, people are gonna be dragged away into exile, including him. Things are not going very well. And he's a person. Yes, he's a poet. Yes, he's a prophet. But he's a person. And everything that he knows and loves, everyone he knows and loves, is being shaken to the core. Some are dying. Some are being taken into exile. So as we think about the nature of lament, I want you to remember Jeremiah as, as the prophet who is the poet, who is a person. And as we look at these aspects of Jeremiah, we can see how we can lament and why we must learn how to lament. So if you have your bulletin, you can turn to page 3. We're going to look at a few verses here in Jeremiah chapter 8. If you look at the very first verse, um, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. That's Jeremiah's voice. He's speaking as a man, as a poet in this part, in this verse. But then the voice immediately switches in verse 19 to the people. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. So the people then speak. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? The people are crying out, and Jeremiah as prophet is giving voice to the cries of the people. He's, in a way, bearing that up to God. And then immediately, God chimes in, and he asks a question. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The first ten chapters of Jeremiah, one way to think about it. Um, one way we might think about a prophet is sort of as a covenant prosecutor. God's made a covenant with his people with attendant laws and the prophet comes and says, here's how you've fallen short of that law. But the other way to think about Jeremiah is there's this significant thread of God being married to his people. So he's not just a covenant prosecutor, he's a divorce attorney. And he's making God's case to the people about why they're breaking up. And the crux of the matter is idolatry which is described over and over and over again as adultery. So Jeremiah lives in this space where he gives voice to his own grief, where he gives voice to the grief of the people, and then he speaks for God to the people. Imagine bearing all of that in your vocation to speak for all of those people and in the midst of that, to feel all the things that you're feeling. And his voice in the midst of this is a voice of lament. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. God and his people are breaking up, and I'm mediating this breakup. I'm the one standing in between the adulterous people and the God who has been grieved by their adultery. So Jeremiah is the prophet who speaks the words of God to the people, but he also speaks the word of the people back to God. And in the midst of that, as a poet, he weaves together these voices. And as we'll see later on, there's places where it's not exactly clear who's speaking. Is it God? Is it Jeremiah? We'll get back to that. So, Jeremiah is a mediator. He's a prophet. And he's praying a grievous prayer, a lamenting prayer. And we can think of lament as a mode of prayer. It's a mode of prayer that is all over the scriptures. Depending on how you count it, 40% of the psalms are some kind of lament. So the psalm we just read, that's a lament. Everything's rubble. God, how long are you going to let this go on? Are we not your people? Why are you letting this happen? That's lament. But it's also prayer. just want that to hit you. It's prayer. The prayer book of the Bible is the Psalms. The Psalms are meant to teach us how to pray. So what I take away from this is we're meant to lament. We're meant to pray our grief, our doubt, our anger, our pain, our anguish. We're meant to make space within prayer through lament for those things because prayer is relational. It's our way we communicate with God, the way that God communicates with us. And think about if you had a relationship where you could never express doubt, a relationship where you could never express anger, a relationship where you could never express that anguish, If prayer is relational and we don't have space in prayer to express those things, then what's going to (laughs) happen? It's going to come out some other way. The scriptures call us to mourn with those that mourn and to weep with those that weep. It's not just lamenting for ourselves. It's lamenting as we look and we walk with people around us who are grieving, as we look into the world and we see its own brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Why? for they will receive comfort. There's the endorsement from our Savior himself for lament. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive comfort. And what I want you to keep in your minds tonight as we talk about lamenting is what happens when we refuse to pray these kinds of things, when we refuse to take our doubt and our anger and our anguish and make them a matter of prayer, to make them a matter of lament. My experience with that is that it comes out another way. It doesn't come out in the relationship with God. It comes out sideways and affects other people. Think about an unhealthy relationship where you can't tell the other person that you're upset with them. Somebody else is going to get it, right? It's going to come out sideways. It's going to curdle inside of you. It might turn you, uh, might petrify you in a certain way. And I just want to say that doubt and unbelief are not the same things. Doubt, unexpressed, can curdle into unbelief. But doubt, there's so much room through the scriptures to pray our doubt to God. God, what are you doing? Read the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to climb up this tower. I'm going to ask you, God, what are you up to? What are you even doing? Job, God, what are you up to? Those are questions of doubt. And there's a space within prayer through lament for our doubt. So lament is an important aspect of our prayer, and lament is an acknowledgement of our brokenness our personal brokenness, but it's also a recognition of the world's brokenness. And both of those things have to be present. Both of those things are at play simultaneously. There's an intuition in lament that my brokenness is related to the world's brokenness, that I'm not separate from those things that are out in the world, but I'm part of it, that I'm participating in it. It's part of the reason that we say we in our confession of sin we have sinned against you it's not just me it is me but it's we my brokenness and your brokenness all adds up to the world's brokenness so true lament looks outward and weeps for the broken world it asks the question how long o lord how long must we wait but true lament also looks within and says cleanse me o lord and i will be cleansed So there's a temptation to live as if one of those is true and not the other. That it's all about my brokenness and there's nothing out in the world that I have to lament for. Or it's completely about that and I don't don't participate in the brokenness at all. In fact, I have all the answers. I do have all the answers. That's why he's laughing. So one will lead to self-despair. If I live as if I'm the only problem with the world, that leads to despair. But if I am overly, that will make me overly scrupulous. But if I live with uncritical outrage of the self-righteous, which is what Twitter should be called, right? The uncritical outrage of the self-righteous, a.k.a. Twitter, then I'm going to think I don't have anything to contribute other than answers. I don't break the world. I fix the world. That's self-righteous. But if I'm just here and I'm just in my pietistic Grieving over my own sin, then I can't be called into the world's brokenness. There's an essay by Wendell Berry called Why I Will Not Be Buying a Personal Computer. It was written in the 90s. Okay? Wendell, if you don't know who Wendell Berry is, you should know. But he writes all of his essays longhand with pencil, and then his wife types him up. This was before Twitter, but it, people had a Twitter like reaction to what he said. And they wrote in all these letters, and they were like, How dare you? Computers are awesome. You're so backwards, all this stuff. And he writes back and he's like, first of all, I just said why I will not be buying a computer. I did not say why you should not be buying a computer. And then he makes this point because in many ways he's a conservationist, but he has a big problem with conservationists. And he says this, this is what's wrong with the conservation movement. It has a clear conscience. The guilty are always other people. The wrong is always somewhere else. When it's, if we just think lament is just looking out and not looking in, that's outrage. That's different. There is a place within lament for anger, there's a place within lament for crying out to God. But we don't, we can never do that with a clear conscience and say that we're not part of the issue. Again, the intuition of lament is that our brokenness and the world's brokenness are not unrelated things. So think about the structure of the way that we do the prayers of the people. What do we start with? We start with the church, right? Pray for the church. Before we pray for anybody else, let's pray for us. Right? Let's pray for our leaders. Pray for us. That's, that's why we're not leading the prayers of the people on average Sunday, because we need to be prayed for as leaders of the church, because we're broken too. We pray for the church, then we pray for the nations and the world. And there is a matter, there's a dimension of lament to that, right? Because we're crying out for the world that is broken, but we're crying out for our own brokenness too. And this may seem counterintuitive, but when we lament, it is a matter of hope. When we lament, it is actually a hopeful thing. Because if we don't actually have a sense that there's something called shalom, peace, new creation, that God has the power and the intention and the will and the desire to put everything back together, then all lament would be is a meaningless cry into the dark. But we don't believe that it's that. We believe that even if God is not, if we can't sense that God is hearing us, that in faith and in hope we believe that he is still hearing us. So in lament we bring our doubt, our anger, our anguish before God Because we know that it is not the way it's supposed to be. Me, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. The world, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we're asking God to set things right. Now, here's the danger in lament. And maybe sometimes why we don't do it. Because if prayer is relational and lament is relational, we have to be willing to hear what God might say back. It's not just us voicing our doubt. It's God might have some things to say too, which is, again, if you look at the book of Habakkuk, God has some things to say to Habakkuk. If you look at the book of Job, God ends up having some things to say to Job. And in these verses before us, the people cry out to God, and then God says, why have you provoked me to anger with your idolatry? God says something back. He puts his finger on their brokenness and calls them to repentance. And that's the danger of lament for us, is that God might put his finger on our brokenness and call us to repentance, call us to healing. But he also might call us into the world's brokenness, if we're willing to listen back. He might call us to the widow, the orphan, the enslaved, the displaced, the despised, the addicted, the trapped, the people that maybe we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. God might call us into that, to be part of his answer to the world, to put things back together the way that they're supposed to be. So the question behind lament is, are we willing to bear our brokenness to God in repentance? And are we also willing to enter the world's brokenness as witnesses to hope, as witnesses to the one who says, at the end of all things, I'm going to set things to right. I'm gonna put everything back together together again. And Jeremiah is an example of this. He bears the grief of his people to God. The commentator Philip Ryken says this, that lamentation is hard service. It's not easy to lament. Why? Because Jeremiah, at one and the same time, has a passion for God's righteousness, so he is troubled by human sin But he also has a love for God's people, so he is troubled by God's judgment. And both of those things are happening simultaneously. Again, we want one or the other. We want to live in one space and not the other. But the call in lament is to live in both spaces, to be able to say, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. So, Jeremiah's role as a prophet is more than simple denunciation. Here's all the wrong things you've done, people of God. He doesn't stand above the people, but he rather stands with the people. So he might be this covenant lawyer, he might be the divorce attorney, but he came out of the same people. He's part of it too. He mediates both parties that are grieved, which brings us to... To what is to me the most interesting and challenging part of these verses, which is the possibility that God is lamenting, that God is grieving. Look at verse 21 The wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded, and dismay has taken hold of me. Who's talking? Is that Jeremiah? Is it God? Does it matter? Is it all sort of blended together? Chapter nine, verse one, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Is that God? Is that Jeremiah? Commentators go both ways. Um, this is one of the verses where Jeremiah gets his wonderful nickname, the weeping prophet. So he was listening to the Smiths in the dark in high school too. That's not me. That's just an example. Um, Who says these words? Is it Jeremiah or God? Think of Jeremiah. He has been the divorce attorney. And we can say that God is grieved. And maybe that statement shocks you. But most of us, if we grew up around sort of the evangelical world, wouldn't have any problem of saying God gets angry. So why would we have a problem saying God is grieved? And why would we have a problem talking about the relationship between anger and grief? Christopher Wright, in his commentary, The Message of Jeremiah, puts it this way. We must not think, for example, that if God is grieved by our sin, he cannot also be angry about it. Just think about the nature of relationship. On the contrary, the very nature of the relationship is such that terrible anger... And desperate grief are both simultaneously appropriate reactions. As those who have experienced or witnessed a marriage breakdown will immediately agree. Jeremiah has already portrayed the relationship between Yahweh and Israel as a marriage that began with the honeymoon and ended in divorce. Anger and tears? Absolutely. God is grieved over what his people have done. Which brings us to Jesus. Jesus laments too. Jesus as the one mediator between God and man, that we heard about in Paul in First Timothy. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, which has something to do with his prophetic office, meaning that he is bearing the voice of the people to God and bearing the voice of God to the people. Jesus as a prophet is entering into Jerusalem. And what does he say? He says, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he weeps over the city that kills the prophets. He weeps over the city that will kill him. Is Jesus grieved? Oh yeah. Is he angry too? Yeah. It's all mixed together. This is the city that kills the prophets, but he loves it. He loves that city because that grief and that anger is all rooted in covenant love for the people of God. There is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus our Lord. And Christ's greatest lament is from the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no deeper cry of anguish or lament than that. And in crying that out, Jesus goes to the outer limits of God forsakenness. He experiences death and destruction. He experiences what the whole people of God experienced in exile so that that might never have to happen again. See, we need, a, we need a mediator. We need a mediator who can voice the people's lament to God that Jesus cries out for everyone who's ever felt abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also is God's lament to the world. "Like This is what I'm willing to do to mend this relationship. Okay, this divorce is not final. I'm making a new covenant to use the, jam- the language of Jeremiah. So this brings us back to what Jeremiah says, to the most famous portion of these verses. Is there no balm in Gilead? Meaning, can this not be put back together again? Can this not be healed? Can this not be Reconciled? Is there no balm in Gilead? Because we have the one mediator between God and man, that's not a question anymore. In the great spiritual tr- uh, song tradition of America, that question has become a statement. Is there no balm in Gilead has become, there is a balm in Gilead. Maybe you've heard that song. It's a beautiful song. Because of the recognition of Christ as the one mediator, And as the one who laments for and with us, there is a balm in Gilead. There is an answer to our brokenness and there is an answer to the world's brokenness. And it is the one mediator between Christ, God, and man. The God who, as Paul says, desires that all would be saved. And yet, in the midst of our own lives, we wait for the fullness of that, which is why we must learn how to lament ourselves. Jesus gave the ultimate lament. We cannot ultimately be forsaken by God, and yet we're here in this middle space where we're waiting, and there's still brokenness in here, and there's still brokenness out there. So my hope for myself and for us is that we could be people who learn how to pray this way, to not be scared of it, to not be scared of taking our doubt to God, to not be scared of taking our anger to God, and not to be scared either of what he might say back, of the way that he might call our brokenness out of ourselves to give back to him for healing and repentance, and the ways in which he might call us into the world's brokenness. Let us pray. Lord God, we we thank you. um, We thank you that you are the one mediator, um, that you bear the voice of the people to God, and you bear the voice of God to the people with complete perfection. So, Lord, we want to trust you. We want, um, we want to be able to express everything that we feel in the midst of the brokenness of life. So, Lord, we pray truly that you would teach us how to lament and that lament to you would truly be a matter of hope as we wait uh, for the reconciliation of all things. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.